Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again. If we have not yet met, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. If you would, after service, I'll be at the back door. If you're new or visiting, just would you make a point to introduce yourself? Um, you could have been here for 10 years, and I wouldn't know because I'm still trying to get uh, names and faces, so I appreciate you being gracious with me in that, but um, would want to let you know that we are glad that you are here, that you've chosen to worship with us. Just by one way of reminder and one of our announcements this morning, if you are recently attending, um, been at Veritas for some time, we would encourage you and remind you that uh, the next two Sunday afternoons will be our new members meeting, and this is your opportunity to learn more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as we follow him here at Veritas Church. So attending this class is a prerequisite to membership, but attending this class does not automatically mean you must be a member. You may go through this class, learn a little bit, and find out this is not the church for me. That's okay. You may go through this class and have some more questions and want to press in further, and that is wonderful. What I would ask you to do is just make note in your bulletin there, that URL that's there. Um, that is the form that signs you up for this class. We just need to know an idea of how many materials to order and uh, food to provide. So if you're planning on attending, would you do me a favor? Uh, before midweek, just hit that URL, sign up so we can know what to account for there. All right, let's lay that aside. If you have not already, would you open your copy of God's Word to the book of Mark, chapter 4, where we'll be this morning. And as we consider God's Word, let's briefly pause and ask for his help. Our God and our Father, we come to you as your dear children. We come as you have instructed those who ask, who seek, who knock, and we are petitioning you that you would hear and attend to our need, Lord. And with your word before us, as it's been read and it is now open upon our laps, Lord, we recognize that the work is not yet done. We have great need for the ministry of your own spirit. We have great need for your work in us so that genuine fruit might be born in our life. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to make the reading and the preaching of your word an effectual means, an effectual means to convince and convert sinful unbelief an effectual means to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto the salvation that you grant to us in Christ. Lord, we ask for your great help to attend to your word, that we would do so with all the diligence, that we might gladly receive it in faith, lay it up in love, to store it in our hearts, and Lord, that it might actually be practiced in our lives. Lord, in all of this would you accomplish by your gracious purpose and your great help. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I think you know it's long been understood and long agreed that we retain far less than what we consume. Think about reading even a thousand words. After reading, that's a mid-sized article. How much of that thousand words could you actually remember? or you listen to an audiobook for two hours, how much of the two hours do you actually retain and remember? And 
if you scan uh, book publishers or recent sale trends, you'll find there is this growing market for the sort of book that helps you how to take smart notes or how to retain what you've read, how to better remember what you watch or listen to. We're simply asking, how can I be sure that I'm really hearing what I'm listening to? And the conclusion, I think, is obvious that we are a culture that is glutted with information, but we are not quite convinced that we are actually retaining what it is that we continue to consume. We do ask ourselves at the end of every article, perhaps at the end of another book or at the end of another audiobook, am I actually hearing? Am I actually retaining? And a better question, am I being changed? by what I'm reading. The concern is valid, and I think it's the particular concern that Christ had here in the portion of scripture that's before us. It's worth remembering that as we make our way through Mark's gospel, he at this point is writing and showing there are two simultaneous and growing responses towards Jesus that are, that are in a sense, climbing right alongside one another. Those, those responses are that he's growing in popularity, and there's also growing hostility simultaneously happening in his ministry. In the first three chapters, Mark focuses in on the various examples of the scribes' hatred, their opposition, even their desire to kill Jesus. We're not even to the end, we're not even to the cross, and yet Mark tells us at the end of chapter 3 that they plotted with the Herodians how they might destroy him. It's growing intense. But at the same time, Mark is weaving throughout this narrative not only growing hostility, but growing popularity. The crowds continue to swell. If you remember back in chapter 3, there was kind of a precautionary measure where Jesus called his disciples and said, have a boat ready as I'm teaching the masses, I may need to step into that boat, push out from the shore, lest the crowds press upon us. And then in chapter 4, we read that they actually employ the boat method as Jesus gets into the boat, pushes out from shore so that he can address the crowds there and begin to teach. Simultaneous opposition and popularity. But as Jesus is doing that, the ultimate need is not how will this massive crowd merely hear his voice for the needs of amplification, but how would they actually understand what he's teaching? And with any large crowd, there's some that are going to be tracking. They're clicking with everything Jesus is saying. Some are there just out of curiosity. Some are there because they've heard that he heals and they have a particular felt need. Some are there, most likely they don't know why, but there's a lot of people and we should probably be there unless we miss out, much like many crowds today. Notice that Jesus is not content to merely amass a crowd of people. Just because crowds are swelling, he does not sit back and say, boys, we are doing a good work. He's actually concerned. He's concerned for the sort of hearer that is amongst these crowds listening to his teaching. And so what does Jesus do in order to distinguish between the followers within this growing crowd? Mark tells us at this point that he began to teach in parables. If you don't know, a parable is essentially a story within a story. 
Most woodenly and, and directly, it means to lay alongside, where you, you teach by comparison. You, you literally put something here, lay something alongside of it, and then you can make some sort of connection or application. And if you scan across the first 30 or so verses of Mark chapter 4, you'll find a collection of parables ending with this summary down in verse 33, where Mark says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, the first of these four parables is probably the most well-known, the one that we read this morning, and it is the most significant because even here in Mark's gospel, it is so significant that Jesus says, if you do not understand this parable, how will you understand all the rest? So that is our clue, listeners, that this one is of particular importance so that we understand what else is going to be said in Christ's teaching. The parable begins with a call to listen. And doesn't that happen every now and then if you're in a classroom or a meeting at work and there's just kind of droning on, droning on, but at the moment the teacher says, listen, our attention perks up. And this theme of listening or hearing is the repeated emphasis over the next 20 verses as Jesus takes great effort to talk about the kind of hearing that is going on. He begins by saying, listen, and begins to talk about the various ways that we might be hearing. And what Jesus wants to unpack, and what we must see, is that it is entirely possible to hear with your ears, as most every single one of us are doing this morning, and yet remain unfruitful and unconverted. And the only ones who are actually listening, according to Jesus, are the ones whose lives bear fruit. So the question is exposed. Why is it that so many are hearing the word of the kingdom, but not everyone is responding to the word of the kingdom? Well, Jesus gives to us this parable that we might be helped in answering that question. Let's begin first by just considering the parable itself, some of the themes and elements that are here before we break it down. As you read through verses 3 through 9, I think it's helpful to just gather up some of the various elements that are there, to look at them, and just remember what is being said here. First of all, Jesus is speaking of a very familiar process within agrarian life. He's talking about a sower, the one who sows and plants the seed. He's talking about various, again, mentioning the seed. He talks, talks about types of soil and then ultimately a harvest. If you lived in that culture and you were agrarian in the way that you raised not even a massive farm but just a small garden, you understood. These are very common elements. Sowing the seed, the seed itself, the sower, uh, the soil, and eventually there's going to be fruit. That's what we're doing. But Jesus also speaks to something very familiar that every farmer knows by experience. What is that? That the possession, the mere possession of good seed does not guarantee a crop. 
Secondly, scattering seed upon the ground does not guarantee a good crop. Every farmer knows this because there is a variable in the mix. The variable is the content of the soil. So Jesus is speaking to things that are in some ways very obvious and very plain, but very important. The same seed sown by the same farmer can yield no fruit, temporary fruit, or abundant fruit. This reality is the framework that Jesus uses and how he wants to teach about hearing and receiving and bearing fruit. So let's think now about the reason for parables. Because he tells the parable, there's this little middle section where he talks about the reason for him, and then he goes on to explain it. So let's start with why Jesus is even teaching in parables. Look back at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those who are outside, everything is in parables, verse 12, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Upon hearing this parable, the disciples and those listening, some press forward, and in out of curiosity, they say, why are you doing this? They ask about the parable. In Matthew's account, they actually are very specific, and they say, why do you teach in parables? Why is it, Jesus, that this is the method that you have taken up? And the modern church often answers, well, so that complex things can be made simple. A parable is essentially an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus is doing this to grab the attention. He's a storyteller. That's what Jesus does. But are we putting words in Jesus' mouth? Is that what he answers? Verse 11, he says, The reason I'm teaching in parables in part is there's a sense of sovereign mystery here. To you, to his disciples, it's been given the secret of the kingdom. But to those outside, it's not been given. He says, if you're going to understand parables, you must understand it at its heart. There is a sense of sovereign mystery here. And then in verse 12, he says, there's also a sense of division and judgment in why I teach in parables. Jesus quotes Isaiah. That's where that quotation is from. And that portion of Isaiah, he is noting that there is a form of judgment that comes upon those who have hardened their hearts that refuse to worship Yahweh as Lord. Now, this is consistent with really what all of Scripture teaches. The disciples were not disciples because left to themselves, they decided it'd be a good thing to follow Jesus. We know that even from Mark's account. They were disciples because God had chose them. It was the outworking of divine mercy to see Jesus as who he is. And in Isaiah chapter 5 and 6, the context there is actually of coming judgment against Israel. There's this allegory in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, of the vineyard. God is portrayed as, as the owner of the vineyard, who cares for Israel, his vineyard, but this vineyard, Israel, has proved unfruitful. He's been gracious. 
He's been sent water and he's been kind and he's protected it, but they have proved themselves unfruitful. And so God says, I'm going to remove this hedge of protection. Assyria is going to come in, take them captive, and this is going to be a judgment. And then there's this wonderful portion that we love to quote in Isaiah 6. He sees the holiness of the Lord. He hears, whom shall go? Whom, whom shall I send? And we love this passage, especially at missions, conferences. Isaiah says, send me. And we all say, amen, let's send. Do you read the next verses? Because the next few verses are exactly what Mark quotes here. Amen, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. And you're going to speak and they're not going to listen. You're going to preach and they're not going to respond. Because of the hardness of their heart and my purposes to bring judgment. Hmm. Who wants to go now? This is the portion of scripture that Jesus quotes when he answers, let's talk about parables. Let's talk about an unfruitful vineyard. Let's talk about people who heard God's word but refused to listen. The word is going to continue to go forth, but it's going to bring about a variety of purposes. Because Israel failed to produce fruit, Isaiah's words would now be words of judgment. They would fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. And tragically, this is a pattern that is repeated and shown to us again and again throughout Scripture. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart by rejecting God's command, and then God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his purpose, to deliver his people from Egypt. The same pattern is here in Mark's gospel. You remember back in chapter 3, the scribes, the experts of the law, they come to Jesus and say, you are doing what you are doing by the authority of Satan. And Jesus begins to warn about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, saying, when you attribute the work of God to the work of Satan, and you refuse to see and respond to the Spirit of God, that is the ultimate sin, because it is the response of unbelief. And it's in that context that Jesus is speaking in parables. God will now accomplish his sovereign purpose of salvation, not just despite their rejection, but through their rejection. And to do this, he will continue to close eyes that are closed, to dull hearts that are dull. Jesus' words, like Isaiah, it's a judicial pronouncement of coming judgment by which God is going to accomplish his sovereign purpose. So in that sense, parables are working simultaneously in opposite directions. This is the wisdom of the Lord. The opposite directions are judgment and mercy. What Jesus is doing here is he begins to speak in parables. And for those who know, those whose hearts are attuned and open, they press in to say, Jesus, what does that mean? Do you notice that's who presses forward is the disciples? What does this mean? Tell us more. As you read through the Gospels, what you find is that the scribes, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, they hear and they walk away. I don't know what he's talking about. Furthermore, I don't really care. By the same word preached, some press in and some press back. Judgment, mercy. That is why Christ begins to teach in parables. Parables. 
judgment, and mercy. One commentator said this, this is a reminder to us that God can send his word with the purpose of judgment as well as salvation. The sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The word which opens the heart of some to receive Christ confirms others in their rebellion, rejection, and unbelief. The parables then become the doors by which some enter into the glories of the kingdom while others are shut out from its blessing. One thing is certain. When Jesus speaks, when the gospel is preached, there's always a response. Always. And throughout scripture, we see these examples of how God deals with this hard-hearted rebellion with a very sobering sort of judgment. Not the sort of judgment of fire from the sky or skin diseases that break out upon your body, but the sort of judgment where God says, I'm going to give you up to the very rebellion that you are obsessed with. Isn't that Paul's indictment in the beginning of Romans? Three times he says he gives the unrighteous up, he gives them up, he gives them over. This is the most sober kind of judgment where God gives a rebellious heart the very thing they seek. You blaspheme me, you attribute my name to the works of Satan, you refuse to listen to Yahweh who is in your midst, scribes and Pharisees, have it your way. See, these parables are not cute, trite little stories to help us understand mysterious things. They are a merciful thing that God gives, but they are set in with this grievous context of hard-heartedness and how God deals with this. Jesus teaches in parables to simultaneously bring judgment and mercy. Judgment upon those who want nothing to do with him and mercy upon those who are saying, please teach us, tell us more. We want to understand what you're saying. So in this sense, the parables are really a litmus test. Is there genuine faith upon these listeners? Will it draw people close? Or will they shrug their shoulders, shake their heads, and walk away? Church, this is the mystery and the sobering power of God's word. Have you not seen this? Have you seen this even in your own life? Why did you respond and your unbelieving friend walked away. Why is that? Because you are more holy? Because you're smarter? Because you are closer to God and therefore you heard better? No, any of us who know that God saves and God calls, it was none of that. At the end of it, you dig under every reason and you find it was all of grace. The sovereign mystery of God's grace, that my hard heart, my rebellious mind, my disordered affections, and yet Christ pursued me, and his word apprehended me. This is the sovereign mystery of God's word. This is the reality of what is happening every time God's word is read and preached. It is the very means by which God will bring forth simultaneously judgment. Every man is without excuse and mercy, for his people shall receive mercy. This is the wisdom of God. 
We cannot fathom with our finite minds the mystery of what God is doing even in this moment. And so, church, this is why we must always trust in and why we always seek to emphasize the ministry of God's word. Because it is the very means by which God gathers his people unto himself. Because we recognize it's not that some of us come in with a leg up saying, my heart's a little softer than yours, my brain's a little bigger than yours, my desire for God's a little further along than yours. We all recognize that left to ourselves, the corruption of sin leaves us in the same place. But we trust in the power of God's word to actually accomplish God's purposes. We then are not left to trust in gimmicks or marketing or to present sort of some sort of palpable ministry to an unbelieving world so that they would be curious enough to say, what is it that you're talking about? We are winsome and we are burdened to pray and we trust in the ministry of God's word to say, this is what my unbelieving friends and family need to hear. God's word. The truth of it. The word of God is the ordinary means of God to gather and strengthen his people. If you want to think more about this, I would commend you to the Baptist Catechism, question 94 and 95. A good one to think upon even this afternoon. If you're not familiar with the Catechism, it's basically a question and answer that takes and encapsulates good biblical truth in such a way that you can meditate on it and think about it. Question 94 said, how is the word of God made effectual to salvation? Answer, the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith until salvation. Now, those of you who attended this week's conference have a bit of a leg up and being reminded of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does in regards to the ministry of the word. And Jesus here, as he lays these parables before us, he reminds us of the reason for them, judgment and mercy. Having that background in our mind, let's consider lastly just the meaning of this parable that Christ says, if we don't understand this, how will we understand all the parables? Now, keep in mind the sort of sowing that Jesus has in mind here is not the modern-day agro-business GPS-enabled harvesters with perfectly symmetrical rows planted all in a line. Jesus is talking about the sort of planting that is broadcasting. I can remember my grandpa going out to fertilize the lawn and just had that very simple tool that was a funnel with a bucket with a paddle on the bottom and a wheel. And as the fertilizer or the seed falls through the hole, that paddle just throws seed in a certain direction. You could always tell when he had fertilized or seeded because he'd walk along the sidewalk and you'd see the little pebbles or the beads and you'd know, hey, that was meant for the grass, but it got over here. That's what happens in broadcasting. You're casting very liberally. You're sowing the seed. Jesus uses this very image to describe the sort of hearing and the sort of fruit bearing that he's concerned with. Let's consider the various types of soils that he speaks to. First of all, he says there is a hard path. There's hard soil. Look back at verse 13. 
He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. He speaks, first of all, of this hard soil in this hard path. Now, you can imagine this, can't you, in your mind's eye, intersecting uh, amongst the fields. There would be these various footpaths to get you between various crops and various fields. And over time, as you would make your way between the fields and walk along these paths, the same soil that was there has suddenly become hardened just because of foot traffic. And suddenly a path is formed. As the sower comes along to sow, some seed goes right up to the edge and onto this path. Now, it's dirt, but it's not good dirt for seeds to grow. This dirt has been trampled down and hardened, and it's impenetrable. Those here are those who hear the word but it does nothing other than to cause their eardrums to vibrate. They may hear, but they don't accept it. Because many were following Jesus, interested in hearing what he had to say, but altogether unmoved by his preaching. The Pharisees heard Jesus' teaching, but they were not welcoming it. They were not accepting it. And you can almost see the good seed bouncing off their hearts as they walk away and Jesus continues to preach. Some followed simply to see a miracle. And if there was no miracle that day, only teaching, I guess we come back another day. And Jesus makes it clear that when this is happening behind the scenes, there's an enemy. And the enemy is actually capitalizing on this hardness of heart and in his language, stealing the word away so that it bears no fruit. One commentator said, whenever through inattention, lack of spiritual sympathy, unwillingness to receive or opposition, men fail to understand the word, it cannot benefit them. It lies for a moment on the surface of the mind till by some one of the thousand evil influences which Satan and his subordinates employ, it is caught away. And to this, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And he goes on and he says, there's a second type of soil, which we could call the rocky ground. Look down at verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure only for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Picture your field. You could probably imagine how next to a field of good soil, there would also be soil that was kind of left to itself. It had good topsoil that was there, but hard packed underneath bedrock, just under the surface. And a seed would be sown there. That little bit of topsoil would be just enough for that seed to do something. It would spring up. 
But upon this soil, over the course of time, you would notice a little blade springing up. And Jesus describes this sort of hearer even as enthusiastic or joyful in their response. They hear the word of the kingdom, and they immediately talk about how excited they are to finally have heard this sort of teaching. They are all in. They are nodding, giving the amens, new notebook, lots of notes, enthusiastic. But according to Christ, immediately, eventually, no fruit. Jesus says there are those and some that hear, and that though they show an immediate response of joy even, eventually they fall away because they are offended, or in the original language, scandalized. Something happens along the way. The message of the kingdom runs in confrontation to the message of the world. And there is persecution. There's opposition for the sake of actually holding to this word that they were once so excited about. But because of the opposition and the persecution becomes so strong, the decision is saying, I'm casting aside. And they bear no fruit. Choice comes down to either hold fast to God and His Word, endure the opposition, or walk away. There was no fruit. Church, we need to be especially clear on this one. We can expect some form of tribulation or persecution on account of God's Word. And for many years in our recent history, American culture and the American church has enjoyed some sort of apparent overlapping in relationship with one another. When we heard such things about American values, family values, traditional values, there was, as an appearance, some sense of shared morality, where to be a Christian and to hold to the things of the Bible really wasn't that scandalous to step into the workplace or your school or to talk with your neighbor. And it appeared that it was actually somewhat easy to hold to this word and to live in this culture. That is a very unique and very short reality for most cultures and most churches. So what happens when this shared morality begins to cleave and this apparent values that overlapped suddenly dissipate and to actually stand amongst God's people puts you in opposition to the world around you. That is what most Christians have endured for most of history. That is actually a reality for God's people. We need to be especially mindful of this because if you are in your 60s or 70s, Even your 40s and 50s, you've seen a decent shift in what you thought or you could even perceive as overlapping shared morality. But it seems in our day, in our culture, there is a growing dissidence between what it means to confess Christ and to be a citizen of a particular culture. We need to be mindful of this. When this happens, you create an environment of rocky soil and many within the church carry on because there's no resistance. There's no fight. 
But as culture becomes more and more secular and more and more opposed, many hearers are exposed for what they are. If you came to Jesus simply for social experience, for the good that it will do your family, for the good that it will do your kids, you will leave when it becomes unfashionable. That is a warning to us. There is a sort of hearer who initially receives the word of Christ with enthusiasm, but ultimately there is no fruit. And to, the, to this, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. He goes on and he speaks of a third type of soil. The thorny soil that we read of in verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. There is also another type of hearer who is similar to the thorny soil, and here the soil itself per se isn't the problem because something's growing here. The problem in this soil, you could say, is competition. In this instance, the pressure's not external, it's actually internal. It's the trouble of divided loyalty. Jesus zeroes in on three specific examples. He mentions the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. The cares of the world, this would be the sort of various anxieties that we worry over that pertain to the issues of life, not issues that are wrong in and of themselves to be concerned about, but the anxious care of them that consumes us. He mentions the deceitfulness of riches. Again, riches themselves are, are not the problem, but they are so dangerous because of the particular deceit that they bring along with them. Such as, it's very easy when I have an abundance of wealth for them to become my present security, causing me to think that I am content as I am. Because I have enough security, I have enough in case the market crashes, I have enough in case that I lose my job, I have enough in case we need to move. There's a certain deceit that riches promise. And he mentions also this other term, the desire for other things. You could say the pull of covetousness drives them away. Or disordered affections prove to be dominant. Christ becomes dull, underwhelming. Well, let's ask, why does Christ zero in on these three specific examples within this thorny soil? Of all the possibilities that Christ could say, this is what will actually cause the word to not bear fruit, the sort of competition that will prove it to be unfruitful. Why does Jesus choose these sort of examples? Answer, one word unbelief. Think about each of the three examples he gives and how at the root of them is just unbelief. Anxious cares, trust in money, the desire for other things is ultimately to live as if God is not my father. I must be responsible for my life. It's self-sufficiency rather than God dependency. If God is not my father, 
then I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the one who must scheme and plot and strategize to ensure that I have enough, that I will be taken care of, that I will have exactly what my family, my life needs. By the very definition, I am not living as a child of God, but serving my particular idol of security or control or comfort. And eventually those aggressive, persistent thorns choke out the good fruit of God's word. Now think about this. The ruin here, it's not immediate. This this happens gradually, doesn't it? It's not one particular moment at one point in time. The problem here, Christ says, is gradual. He describes it as a process of choking. Choking is a very violent word, isn't it? You could literally imagine hands wrapped around a neck, slowly squeezing out life. And that brutality and that squeezing is exactly what happens to this type of hearer. The deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, they choke out the word. The problem is here is that worldly cares and devotion to other things snuff out spiritual fruit. The problem is that it's deceitful. Thorns are so subtle. These cares are so gradual that you don't immediately notice what is actually happening here. And Jesus says there is a type of hearer who's oblivious to the fact that they think they're hearing. But because there's not good soil, eventually this bears no fruit. We imagine a harvest of plentiful fruit, but what Jesus says you end up finding is a thicket of thorns and no fruit. And to to this, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. But he comes then in verse 20 to a fourth type of soil. Call it the good soil. But in contrast to these other three, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. What's good soil? Good soil is the one who hears and accepts it. Different than the other three. They hear and they accept it. They receive it. And the seed, he says, bears tremendous fruit. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times over, it bears fruit. The word of the kingdom goes forth. God sent forth his son to crush the head of the serpent, to forgive the sins of his people, to draw them to himself, and to establish a kingdom of righteousness. Whoever hears this, repent and believe. And repentance and belief takes root. This sort of hearer receives that word, with meekness. They say, yes, I am that sinful rebel. I need the serpent to be crushed. I need to be washed from my sins. And I know I can't do that in my own self-righteousness or self-efforts. I must place all of my confidence upon this deliverer that I've just heard of. And by faith and humility, they receive the word with meekness. It's the fruit of, of humility. And this sort of hearer patiently waits. They long for the day which Christ will come again. 
They thought maybe it was going to be much sooner, but it seems to be much further than they initially thought. But that's okay. They're patient, and they endure. They know eventually this reign of righteousness will come, and they bear the fruit of patient endurance. This is the sort of hearer that knows until that final day that they walk by faith, and they live by the promise of God's own word, and they trust that God is true and that he's holy and that his name is worth giving their life for because they bear the worth, the fruit of, of living faith. And to, G, to this, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Three soils that bear no fruit, one that bears fruit. So what are we to do with this parable? Well, obviously, we are meant to pause and to question and seriously consider our own receptiveness to the word of God. Am I really hearing? Am I really receiving? But then what? After we stop and recognize, okay, am I hearing? Am I receiving? What do we actually do? Two principles we must hold on to or two points of application that we must not miss. Primarily, church, we are meant to see that hearing is not enough. Every type of soil heard the word. One bore fruit. Hearing the word is not sufficient. It is possible to hear, but not really listen. It is possible to hear, but not bear fruit. I must warn you, simply being present when the word of God is read and preached is not sufficient. It's not enough. And the warning is real that some will grow up in this church faithfully attending, hearing the word of God, and not bear fruit. Children, do you hear that? Some of you will be in this church for decades, but Christ comes to us in his word and says, listen, are you hearing? Faithful member who's been here since the beginning, are you hearing? This stands as a reminder to us, hearing is not enough. When you hear the word of God, do you welcome it? That's Christ's word. They accepted it. Do you receive it as it is, the word of God? That means it has authority over me. It's not my observation where I sit and pick at it and think, I think that actually means this and it doesn't apply here and this actually is different. And then you parse it away to where you have a nice shiny thing that looks oddly enough just like you. That's what we love to do. It's possible to hear and to not hear. Hearing is not enough. But secondly, because of sin, the soil of our hearts is naturally hostile to this word of God. You thought this was going to get better. It doesn't. It will, but not yet. At this point, we could really make a couple of misguided turns and completely miss the punchline of this parable as you've just heard those two principles. Hearing is not enough, and the sinful nature of our hearts causes us to be hostile towards the word of God. You could grab those two principles 
as true as they are, and make a horribly wrong application at this point. The misguided turn at this point would suddenly be to have this unhealthy fixation upon the soil and neglect the sower so that the emphasis of this parable is get your soil right so that God can bear fruit. Church, that's not good news because that forgets the first two principles that we just said. Hearing is not enough in the condition of my sinful heart. It often blinds me, hardens me to actually hear. So just to tell a person, get your heart right. Fix your soil. And let's bear fruit. Is that the purpose of this parable? Is that what we're meant to hear? Soil is unable to change its composition on its own. Any gardener knows this. Something from the outside must happen to that soil. Something must enter into the reality of whatever it is to cause it to be good soil. Jesus is brilliant in his teaching. The gospel reminds us that Jesus is the one, the only one, who changes hearts. By nature, we are all prone to hardness, shallowness, the competition, the love of other things, but Jesus, Jesus is the master gardener who is perfectly skilled to soften soil, to pull out stones, to uproot weeds, to cause his good word to bear good fruit. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Let's take Jesus at his word. He who has ears, let him hear. This is what Christ promises to do to soil. The parable describes Jesus, the faithful sower, who spreads the seed, his word, and even as he is doing right now, this very morning. And if you are looking for Jesus, if you are looking to be a faithful disciple, if you are looking to have sin cleansed, to hear of this promise of restoration and forgiveness, this much is clear. But the parable is inescapably clear. Are we hearing? Are we hearing what Jesus is saying? What is the condition of your soil? Regardless of what you would say, the answer is the same. Look to Christ. Listen to the promise of his word. And by that, I mean something very specific. If you are spiritually deaf, ask the Lord to open your ears that you might hear. If you fear that I am so superficial, Ask the Lord to break up the shallow ground and cause good soil to be in my life. If you are concerned that you are distracted, ask the Lord, give me clarity. I repent of my false gods and idols and all these other loves. Good soil is what I need. And if you see evidence of good fruit in your life, rejoice, give thanks, 
lift your voice to God for the mercy that he has because he has continued to prove himself faithful. Above all, church, we can have confidence in the ministry of God's word because it is God's word who speaks into existence, who overcomes the hardest of hearts, who opens blind eyes, he opens deaf ears, and he causes fruit to grow where there was once barrenness. This is going to become evident as we continue to make our way through Mark's gospel. This little parable is going to be put on display as to what Christ does. Let's close by reminding ourselves of the promise of Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the Lord promises so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's purposes will not fail. God will accomplish his good purpose. And when we are those who say, I need your good purposes in my life, I confess I have not been seeking those you will find him to be a faithful God. You will find him to be a gracious God and the one who actually fulfills his promises to give new hearts, new soil, and ultimately good fruit. Father, we pray and we ask that you would accomplish your good purposes in our lives. We pray that you would give to us hearts of meekness that we might receive with implanted word, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Lord, we do confess that we are so often blind, dull, hard of hearing. And so, Father, we ask, send your spirit to renew our souls and cause your word to bear fruit in our lives, 30, 60, Lord, even a hundredfold, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.